Well, I'm excited this morning. We are starting 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is 16 chapters long. We're probably going to be here a little less than a year. And um, we've just finished the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is more more a, a narrative, right? Like a lot of the Old Testament, like the Gospels, like Acts, it's sort of a, a story. It's, you know, they went here and did this. And as we move into 1 Corinthians, it's not a narrative, it's a letter that was written to a church. And so the way we study and the way we, we teach these books is a little bit different. As we get into 1 Corinthians, you'll find that we're going to dig down a little deeper and we'll look closer at some of the words and some of the phrases. We'll look a little closer at some of the points of doctrine. And there'll be some weeks that we get through quite a bit of material. And there'll be some weeks that we only look at a couple verses. In fact, this week I was kind of planning it out and plotting it. And I um, actually, when I started my pages document, I put 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And I found out that that was very ambitious. And I had to go back and change it to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Because that's as far as we're getting today. All right, some of it, it requires kind of diving down a little bit. So a little backstory, kind of to prep, prepare us, get us ready for the book of 1 Corinthians. Back in Acts chapter 18, in probably 51, 52 AD, Paul is on his second missionary journey. And he's traveling through Asia Minor. <clears throat> he goes through Galatia and Philippi and Thessalonica And you may remember he finds himself in Athens and he goes up to this place called Mars Hill and he begins to teach and he begins to expound and and share the gospel and he gets mocked and he gets chased out of town. And this is sort sort of what was happening for a while. And the next stop for him is the city of Corinth. And we see in Acts chapter 18 that Paul was filled with trepidation as he's getting ready to go to Corinth. <coughs> Corinth at this time, 700,000 people there. About two-thirds of the population were slaves. And the city of Corinth at this time, it had a pretty bad reputation. Corinth was a, it was a port city. And because it was a port city, there were a lot of sailors kind of coming and going, hanging out there. And sort of an an interesting geographical fact. Um, Corinth is is located on this isthmus. And and the water to the south of Corinth is notoriously bad. On one side of this isthmus is the Aegean Sea. On the other side is the Adriatic Sea. And so oftentimes, if a ship was to sail down around that piece of land, they would hit these, these terrible waters. And many ships were lost. Many sailors lost their lives. And because Corinth was a, this port city and it was situated on this isthmus, as it happens, 
you know, the land, it kind of was like hourglass shaped there. And, um, and between the Adriatic Sea and the um, Aegean Sea, it was only four miles wide. You can go ahead and put the picture up there for a second so you can see it. <clears throat> so that's where Corinth is located. And if you could zoom in on it, you'd see in modern days, there's actually a canal going through in between connecting the Adriatic and the Aegean so that ships don't have to sail around that, that big landmass. But in those times, they set up this system, and it was called the, the Diocos. And what it was, it was a track made out of limestone. And then they had these big rollers, and they would take the small ships out of the water on one side, and they'd put them on these rollers, and they would roll them across this four-mile strip of land. Right, so they have like, you know, eight or 10 or whatever big logs. And as soon as the ship rolled off that one log, some of the guys would run around and take that log and put it back in front of the boat. And they would do this back and forth, transporting the smaller ships and all these goods. And so what would happen is you had all these sailors hanging out in port with nothing to do for a few days while they're waiting for their ships to get reloaded or their ships to get translated. And the sailors, as sailors do sometimes, caused a little trouble in the city. And there was also, it was sort of this hub of, of commerce. It was a very transient population. It was very diverse culturally and ethnically. It was a very multicultural city. And historical records show that Corinth was a very immoral city. Corinth was known for its drunkenness and for its lewdness. And this city was also famous for its many temples to all these different gods and goddesses. And the most famous of these temples was the temple to Aphrodite. And the temple to Aphrodite was situated on this hill outside of the city, some 1,800 feet high. And um, historians note that, that this temple is situated up there, and one, one historian, his name is Strabo, he was an ancient Greek historian, he said that the temple of Aphrodite once had acquired more than 1,000 prostitutes donated by both men and women to the service of the goddess. In this temple, 1,000 girls worked in this manner to gather funds for their deity. So there was these 1,000 temple prostitutes, and every night they would come down into Corinth to, to ply their trade, to raise money for, for their church, basically. <laughs> and that's how they, they worshipped Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was through these sexual acts. And as it happens, the Greeks and the Romans, they, they had this, this love of the arts and this love of theater. And so whenever in theater a Corinthian was portrayed, they were always portrayed as drunk and immoral. That was sort of the stereotype that the Corinthians had. In fact, there's a, an expression in the Koine Greek if someone was an over-the-top partier, if they were an immoral person, if someone was living a life of excess, they were called a Corinth Zomi. 
And, and that word Corinthazomi, it means to live like a Corinthian. So anywhere else in the empire, if you're out drunk and sleeping around, oh, look at him, he's a Corinthian, right? That's the situation. That's the, the reputation that Corinth had. And interestingly, Corinth was destroyed by the Romans several centuries prior to this in about 146 BC and later rebuilt by by Julius Caesar in about 46 BC. And the city as well, it was known for, for what was called the Ismithian Games. It was basically a just slightly smaller version of the Olympic Games. And so we see this city, and it's interesting to me. We see this city that's a port city. It's got a transient population. It's got a lot of military it's very culturally and religiously diverse. It's a very affluent city. It's culturally important in the region. The people are huge fans of sports and the arts. It's a very immoral city. Corinth was a city that was marked by a reckless pursuit of pleasure. Sounds like our region, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like the Northwest, like the Puget Sound, like Seattle. <clears throat> and for whatever reason, in Acts chapter 18, Paul is afraid to go into Corinth. Right? He's been struggling. As I said, he's been getting beat up, left for dead, imprisoned, mocked. And he's getting ready to leave Athens and he just... He just doesn't want to go to Corinth. He doesn't want to deal with the Corinthians. Right? He just doesn't have it in him. And the Lord speaks to Paul in Acts chapter 18. And he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many people in this city who are mine. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I love these verses. <clears throat> I love that the Lord spoke this to Paul because at this point, there was no church in Corinth. There wasn't a body of believers in Corinth. But what does the Lord tell Paul? I have many people in this city, Paul. They just don't know it yet. I have many people in this city who are waiting to hear the gospel. I have many people, Paul, who I'm working in their lives, getting them ready to receive the gospel message and to be saved. And so the Lord says, Paul, don't be afraid. Continue to speak because I am with you. He says, I've got you. Go and do the work of the ministry. And so Paul goes, Acts chapter 18, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and it says that they, because they were the same trade, they stayed together and worked together a little bit. And Paul, he gets after it. He goes to the synagogue every Saturday, and he begins to teach. He's persuading people to, to hear the gospel message and believe it. And we learn that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, he gets saved 
and Crispus and Paul and all the new believers, they're, they're driven out of the synagogue. And so it says that once they're driven out of the synagogue, they go right next door. And they rent a house right next door to the synagogue. And Paul sets up a little Bible college there. And the home of this guy named Justice Crispus. I'm sorry, Titus Crispus. And so Paul, he stays there along with Timothy and Silas for about a year and a half, establishing this church in Corinth. And then Paul heads back to Antioch. And so this letter, 1 Corinthians, is written to the church that Paul started there in Corinth. And this church, they, they were a church that had issues. They were a church that struggled. They were a church that had a lot of baggage from their old culture, a lot of baggage from their old lives. And it seems like there was this this continual tension in the Corinthian church. You know, was the world influencing the church or was the church influencing the world? And the reality, I think, in the Corinthian church, in our church, in our lives, everywhere, it's, it's always a little bit of both, right? And that's just the reality. <clears throat> we are attempting to influence the world, and because we're in the world, we're, we're getting influenced by it. And G. Campbell Morgan said this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says, the measure of failure on the part of the church is the measure in which she has allowed herself to be influenced by the spirit of the age. We are sometimes told today that what the church supremely needs is that she should catch the spirit of the age. A thousand times no. What the church supremely needs is to correct the spirit of the age. Man, isn't that true? So often, we're told, you know, the, word, the world is changing. You just need to accept the new paradigm in the world. You need to accept what the world is feeding you. You need to receive the spirit of the age. And G. Campbell Morgan says a thousand times no. We don't need to receive the spirit of the age. We need to correct the spirit of the age. Right? And it seems like culture is kind of on a pendulum, right? It swings to the right. It swings to the left. And I think in our own culture, we are definitely swung to the left right now. Swung to unrighteousness. And, and worldly thinking. And so many churches today are afraid to stand up and proclaim the simple, clear teaching of the word of God. And so often when churches do stand up and proclaim the simple, clear teaching of the word of God, they come under attack from the world from the culture around them. And that seems to have been the case here in Corinth, right? The, the world, the culture, they were bombarding the church 
and the morals and the values of that culture were, were infecting the church of Corinth, as we'll see. Immorality was widespread within the Corinthian church. And so about 56 AD, a couple years after Paul left, he writes this letter to the Corinthian church addressing some doctrinal issues as well as some behavioral issues within the body of Christ. So we're going to pick up the text here, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. You ever just stop and look at the characters in the Bible? Look at the men that God chooses to use. It is so encouraging to me personally to see the men that God chose to use. You've got Peter, James, and John, a bunch of salty old fishermen. You've got Matthew, the tax collector, despised by the public. You've got Simon the zealot. You guys know what a zealot is? A zealot is basically an insurgent, right? If you are from my generation, you grew up with Red Dawn. It's sort of the part of your, your cultural framework, right? You guys remember the movie Red Dawn, right? You got Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen and, and um, C. Thomas Howell engaging in guerrilla warfare, fighting off the whole Russian and Cuban military, right? That's, that's what the zealots were like, right? Rome was this overpowering, occupying force. And these zealots, they were like guerrilla fighters. They would, they would set traps and they would lure Roman soldiers in. And they were known for carrying these short swords called Sicarius. And, they, and they, would, they would try to get these Roman soldiers alone. And they would pull out these little Sicarius and they would, they would just stab them. And they'd, just, and they'd surround them, stab them, and just kind of fade into the crowds and leave the Roman soldier there bleeding out on the ground. The zealots were insurgents. They were freedom fighters. Right? So you've got fishermen, tax collectors, freedom fighters. You've got Paul here, who's a, a Pharisee. Right? This is an interesting collection of guys. But these are the guys that the Lord used to change the world. And I am so encouraged by that, that he didn't go to the ivory towers. Right? He didn't, he didn't go and pick the smartest, most talented, most self-righteous men to carry out his will on earth. He went and collected up normal guys, but guys who were willing and guys who were, had tender hearts towards God. And I think that we need to remember that. That's the qualification. What is your heart towards God? We're going to talk about that in a little bit. It's not your education. It's not any of those things. It's what's your heart towards God. We have this guy here, Paul. And, you know, you probably heard, raise your hand if you've heard this, that the Lord changed Saul's name to Paul. You heard, have you heard that taught? 
That's not true. It never says anywhere in scripture that the Lord changed Saul's name to Paul. His name was likely Saul Paulus. Remember, Paul was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Jew who was born and raised in Hellenistic Greek culture. And because of that, he had a Hebrew name, Saul, and he had a Greek name, Paulos. And early on, when we're first introduced to Saul in Jerusalem, where? In Jerusalem, interacting with his Hebrew peers, Luke refers to him as Saul. And then as soon as he's sent out into the Gentile world, all of a sudden, he starts being referred to as Paul. But never does it say that his name has changed. People are always thinking of the Lord changing Simon's name to Peter. And they think, oh, that must be what happened. But it never says that. Anyway, just an interesting point. Um, Paul was a brilliant man. He went to the best schools, studied under the best rabbis, became a Pharisee, became an expert in Jewish law. And he was also a craftsman, a tradesman. You, you probably heard Paul referred to as a tent maker, right? <laughs> and that, um, and, he, and, he, and he supported his ministry through tent making. And sometimes because of that, we refer to ministers who are bivocational as tent makers, right? And that's a cool expression. It's a great idea, except that Paul probably wasn't a tent maker. The word for tent maker, it's only used once in Acts chapter 18, and that word is actually better translated a leather worker. So he probably, he may have made tents as well because a lot of the tents were made out of leather, but he probably had a little tool sack that he took along with him as he traveled, and he just did little repairs on the side. He'd fix people's broken sandals or, or their torn tunics or whatever as a leather worker. Anyway, just another interesting little tidbit as we're talking about Paul getting into 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul was very zealous for the law as a Pharisee. And early on, he saw Jesus and Christianity as a threat to Judaism, as a threat to the law. So you remember early on in Acts, Paul, he goes on this crusade to to exterminate the followers of Jesus Christ. And to some success, he goes out and he, and, he, and he goes to the surrounding towns and villages and he imprisons the Christians. Remember in Acts chapter 9, he oversees the death of Stephen. And while he's en route, traveling to Damascus to, to further persecute believers, remember the Lord, Lord meets him and he has this, this dramatic, conversion experience where the Lord knocks him to the ground and speaks to him from heaven. It says in Acts chapter 9 verse 1, but Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they referred to the early church as, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. 
And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And I, I kind of think he probably knew at this point. I, I think he had a sneaky suspicion. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And over the next little bit of time, Paul gives his life to the Lord. He gets discipled, and the Lord calls him into ministry. And so Paul, who works so hard to stop the church, is radically converted, and he's called to spread the gospel across the known world. You know, I've heard it said that God doesn't call the qualified, that he qualifies the called. And I, and I love that, largely because I'm unqualified. <laughs> but we see that throughout scripture, don't we? With Moses and David, the apostles we just mentioned. He didn't pick those who were qualified. He qualified those whom he chose. So I don't ever want to hear you guys say, oh, I'm not qualified to serve in ministry. If God calls you, he is capable of equipping you. It says Paul, called by the will of God. That's the key. Are you called by the will of God? That's the qualification to serve in ministry. Did he call you? And if he didn't call you, it doesn't matter how learned you are, how educated you are, how gifted you are, how eloquent you are. None of those things matter if you're not called. But if you are called, he will equip you for the work of the ministry. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Right? An apostle just means one who is sent. And the Bible uses this word apostle in a couple of ways, right? Generally speaking, everyone who is sent out by God is an apostle. But that would be sort of a lowercase apostle, right? Lowercase a apostle. And then there's the uppercase, the big A apostles. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Paul, right? And when John died, right, that was the last of the big A apostles, right? There's no apostolic succession like you hear about some churches. There's no modern day apostles in that sense. There were the apostles and they died and now there's not apostles. So I hope that, I hope that clears that up for you, right? But Paul, he felt the need to, to restate his apostolic big A apostle credentials to the Corinthians because, you know, he had gone in and he had planted this church and he established this church and, and he'd been there for a year and a half. But after he left, he started to get some pushback. Other people are saying, oh, look at Paul. He's not really one of the original 12. You know, how, what authority does Paul have to speak into our lives? 
What authority does Paul have to tell us what to do? And so Paul just says, look, fellas, I am called by God. I am an apostle. Whether you like it or don't like it, it doesn't really matter to me, Paul says. God has given me this commission, and this is what I am. God chose me and called me to be an apostle. Now, verse 1 tells us who the letter was from. And verse 2 tells us who the letter was written to. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who, are in every, those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So it's written to the church. Church is an interesting word. Church is the word ecclesia. And this word ecclesia, it comes from two Greek words. It comes from the word ek and from the word kaleo. <clears throat> and ek means out of. And kaleo means to call forth. And so put together this word ecclesia, it means those who have been called out of or those who have been called forth. And interestingly, originally it was a secular word. It just sort of meant an assembly. Those who were called out of the general population to meet and discuss something. But, but I, I like the, the Christian implications of that word, the gospel implications of that word, don't you? Ek and kaleo, those who have been called out. Because we have been called out of the world, haven't we? We have been called out of the world system. We have been called out of the world's way of thinking. We have been called out of death and into life. It reminds me of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We've been chosen and we've been called. We've been called out of the world system. We've been called out of the darkness and we've been called to walk in the light, to abide with the light of the world, with Jesus. to the church of God in Corinth. I think it's important to note right from the very beginning that these guys in Corinth were born again believers in Jesus Christ. And I want to note that. I want to sort of set that as the baseline because some of the things that were going on in the church of Corinth, frankly, if the person sitting and the row in front of you was engaged in the things that were going on in the church of Corinth, you might question their salvation, right? There were some crazy things going on, as we're going to see. These people were messed up, broken, screwed up people. But do you know what else? They were blood-bought. They were saved. They were purchased 
through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're going to continue to unpack that idea in the coming verses. But it says that they were sanctified in Christ. And we've talked about this word sanctified before. It's the word hagiazo. And this word hagiazo, it has the same root as the word holy or saint. And the idea of, of sanctified and holy and saint is to be, to be set apart. Right, the ladies just came back from Belize. And if you go with us to Belize, you'll see that all the kids in Belize, they have these uniforms that they wear to school. And um, I remember when Elias was little, when he was in kindergarten and first and second grade, he went to this school called Grace Primary. And right across the street from school, the school ran this little snack shop. And, um, and so they would, kids would go over there and buy snacks and buy lunch. So we'd give Elias a couple dollars and, and he would go over there and we'd come pick him up at the end of the day and his little white shirt would have red streaks of ketchup running down it. Or it would have Kool-Aid running down it and chunks of candy stuck to it. Right? It was, it was defiled. That's the best way to describe it. And, um, but the kids, you know, they wear these uniforms. And oftentimes the kids go home for lunch and as soon as they get home, their mom takes them take off the uniform to eat lunch. And they go back to school, they put their uniform back on. And as soon as they get back home, they take their uniform back off again. But every so often, boys, as boys are prone to do, they forget to take off their uniform. And you'll see a boy out there climbing a tree or chasing an iguana wearing his school uniform. And you know that as soon as that boy gets home, he's going to get in trouble. He's going to get a spanking from his mom because he didn't take off his uniform because his uniform wasn't for everyday wear. It wasn't for climbing trees and chasing iguanas. It was set apart for a special purpose to go to school in. And that's very much the idea of being sanctified. It's being set apart for a special purpose. But part of that idea of sanctification and being set apart is remaining clean and remaining pure. So Paul says, look, these guys, they're sanctified, they're set apart. Together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, scholars are kind of split on the meaning of this, this phrase here. Some people feel like Paul is actually saying that he's writing this letter to the Corinthians as well as writing the letter to, to all the other believers in the world. And we know that that's true in a sense, that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's profitable for all of us. But some feel, and I think more accurately, that Paul is highlighting the unity between believers. Specifically, these believers in Corinth and the rest of the believers around the world. You know, we, sometimes we, we hear about or talk about the, the holy Catholic church, right? And we, we, of course, we're not Catholic in the common meaning of that word. But the word Catholic it means universal, right? It means all-encompassing. 
And so we're talking about the Catholic Church in a technical sense. We're talking about the, the universal nature of the body of Christ. And I think that, that, that Mary explained that this morning much better than, than I can explain it even. And when she's talking about she got down there and, and there's, there's Ketchy Mayan ladies and there's Garifuna ladies and there's Creole ladies and there's Mennonite ladies and there's Hispanic ladies and there's all these expats. And there was instantly this, this connection, right? This sense of, of fellowship, this sense of, of family. And, and I don't know if you guys have experienced that, but I've traveled quite a bit. And, you know, and I can think of, you know, in the Ukraine last summer or my times teaching in Peru or wherever you meet believers and all of a sudden there's just this instant, like, your souls are knit together. Why? Because we're family. Because we are the body of Christ. Because we're brothers and sisters. Because we have, we have the same father. And I think that that's what Paul is talking about here, that, that sense of, of connectedness that should exist within the church, that sense of fellowship that comes with part of, of being the body of Christ. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says grace and peace. I never really actually thought about this, and I just read it this week. Grace, the word is charis, and um, it's a very common Greek greeting in those days. And peace, of course, shalom, is a very common Hebrew greeting. So Paul here, he's got this church that's made up of Gentiles from the general population of Corinth, as well as the Jews who got the saved in the synagogue. So he's writing them all, and what does he say? Charis and shalom, grace and peace. I thought that was kind of cool the way he entered within the church. As I said, we're only going to get to verse 3 this morning. Um, I was going to try to go further, but I also wanted to sleep tonight. So, uh, <clears throat> so, so we'll end here. But a couple things that I want to remember this morning. Just like Paul in Acts chapter 18, wherever you're at in life, as you're walking with the Lord, the Lord is going before you. The Lord is working in the hearts of the people that you engage with. He's working in the hearts of the people that you encounter day to day. And there are many people who are ready to give their lives to the Lord. And you know what they're waiting on? They're waiting on you to share the gospel with them. Second, like Paul, each one of us have been sent. Each one of us has a mission. We've been commissioned. Right? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. This is a commission for all believers. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Each one of us has been called to go, to make disciples, to evangelize, 
to share Jesus with people. Third, we, like the Corinthians, are messed up, broken people. But we are the people of God. We have been blood-bought, and we have been redeemed. We have been saved. And as screwed up as you might be, as screwed up as I might be, we belong to Jesus. Amen? Even when we mess up, even when we fail, even when we don't look like it sometimes, we are his. The fourth thing rolls right into that. We are his, so act like it. Live like it. Sanctify yourself. Set yourselves apart from the world's behaviors. Be an active influence in the world rather than letting the world influence you. And lastly, embrace the church. Embrace the body of Christ. Strive for unity, for fellowship. And you know, I get it. Some of us are prickly. Some of us rub each other wrong. But guess what? We're gonna spend eternity together. You might as well get used to me, right? We're stuck. Embrace the body. I personally have just been so, I've been so encouraged with lunch after church. And not just because I like lunch after church, and I do, but I love just the sense of, of oneness that's come out of that. People hanging out, sharing food together, talking, praying for one another. And I feel like the culture in our church is changing because of that. And I feel, I mean, I feel a difference. I, I, I feel just, and a couple people who have visited have commented on that. They said, wow, your church is so loving. Your church is so embracing. Your church is so friendly. And, and I think that's a direct result of us loving one another, of us being in unity with one another. And you know what happens it just overflows, it spills out of the cup, right? And it touches the other people who come. So continue to love one another and let that love for one another pour out to the rest of the world, amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these three verses in 1 Corinthians chapter one. And we pray that you would help us to learn these lessons, Lord, and just to embrace the truths that they hold. We pray that you would help us to, to sanctify ourselves and to walk with you. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.